Well, it's been a delight to be with you this, uh, this weekend, and what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a, a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in particular, we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10, but I'd like for us to read verses 1 through 11 for our uh, reading. So this is the reading of God's holy word. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep." Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me." Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we look at His Word. Our Father, we thank You for the glorious songs that we've sung together this morning. Christ is mine forevermore. His love is my reward. Father, what, what glorious words, and we pray that they are more than just words projected, Lord, up above. We pray that they are the, the, the realities of our hearts. And uh, Father, we now pray for Your help as we study Your Word. We pray that You'd give us ears to hear. We pray for the help of Your Holy Spirit so that Jesus Christ would be exalted and glorified. In His precious name we pray, amen. So many of you know that uh, I think it was this past Friday that uh, the Christian world received news that J.I. Packer had gone on to his uh, heavenly reward. And I think that since 1986 or 1987, uh, J.I. Packer has had a huge influence on my life through his writings. But one of the things that always uh, amazed me about J.I. Packer uh, was, on the one hand, these books that he would write, but on the other, if you just took the introductions that he wrote to other books, you could actually produce a pretty hefty volume of introductions. And some of those introductions are, are, are famous. His uh, introduction to John Owen, Volume 10, uh, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, is, is uh, valuable all on its own. But he also wrote the introduction to a, re- a reprint of J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. And J.I. Packer writes in that introduction that the version of sanctification that was 
common at the time of Ryle and actually for us today was the idea that the Christian life could be summed up like this, let go and let God. Packer actually argues in the introduction to Ryle's holiness that 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 is a profoundly mistaken view of the Christian life, and instead of let go and let God, Packer suggested trust God and get going. I think that as we look at this passage in the Apostle Paul, that Paul would actually affirm that, that what the Christian life is, is one of trusting God, trusting Him for His grace, and to get going. I hope that you believe that the Christian life is actually a life of work. I hope that you believe that it is a life of doing and fighting But I hope that you also believe above everything else that it is a life of grace. And so how does this, on the one hand, this idea that that I am to be doing and I am to be working and I am to be exerting myself and yet I am to be living by the grace of God, how does that actually fit together? Some of you love church history and you'll know that John Owen and Richard Baxter had a uh, uh, basically an a, uh, adversarial relationship. And uh, one time when Richard Baxter wanted to criticize John Owen, he called him the great doer. Okay. Well, I actually would take that as a compliment, the great doer. But it doesn't have to be a compliment, does it? And so as we come to this text in the Apostle Paul, Paul actually brings together these two wonderful themes of work and grace. And in light of our themes uh, this weekend uh, for the family camp, I thought this would be a fitting way to sort of bring things to an end. Of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is famous because it is the resurrection chapter, and Paul opens this chapter up with matters of first importance, and he says to the Corinthians that I delivered to you things or matters of first importance, which you then received, and then of course he gives us the gospel in a nutshell, so to speak. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and then he appeared and then Paul begins to list the appearances that Christ actually made to demonstrate his resurrection. Now all of that is vitally important and worth studying but for our purposes this morning it serves as background because what happens is that then Paul says then Finally, or at last, he appeared to me. And the thing that that, that is worth noting is the way that Paul describes himself. Notice verse 8, and last of all, by the way, that's probably a temporal reference. That is, in this list of appearances, I come in last. And then the New American Standard says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. 
It's interesting that this, this particular word, untimely born, is, um, is, is a difficult word to actually know how to uh, understand because in first century Greco-Roman world, this word meant uh, somebody, uh, uh, an infant that was either born prematurely or even could imply one that was aborted. And so Paul says that he is this one who, in New American Standard, untimely born, I don't think actually captures it because what Paul's doing is he's describing himself and his own apostleship in, in let's just say, abnormal and maybe even repulsive type terms. This, this phrase that's used, untimely born, could in fact be a derogatory term that Paul often would use of himself, a self-deprecating term reflecting the absolute unlikelihood that he himself would be a follower of Jesus, let alone an apostle of Jesus. One commentator actually suggests that we should, we should translate this uh, phrase uh, one untimely born as the runt of the litter, okay? Well, that's all fine and good, but my problem with that is I often find the runts of the litter to be cute and adorable and the best of all the dogs, right? Uh, it is probably this term of, of horror, a, a, a reference to Paul's own state of wretchedness as a persecutor of the church. In other words, the language is metaphorical for something that, that, that causes horror or even disgust. So one commentator says this, before his call and conversion, he was dead, but he was miraculously given life through the grace of God. And so here's Paul, and he uses this, this phrase of, of self-abasement. Now, by the way, we live in a culture in which self-abasement is really not in. Okay? In fact, we, we, we live in a culture where um, it's better to be somewhat like Stuart Smalley than to be self-abasing. And I see like three people smiling or laughing. The rest of you say, who is Stuart Smalley? Well, if you actually watched classic TV 20-plus years ago, you would know Stuart Smalley was a character on Saturday Night Live. And uh, <laughs> it makes me laugh every time I think of it because it was daily affirmations with Stuart Smalley. And it begins with him talking in a mirror to himself, and his last line was, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> there was nothing of that in Paul. Paul would say things that were absolutely self-abasing, and then after he says, here I am, this one grotesquely uh, born out of due season, he then says, I'm the least, verse 9, I am the least of all the apostles. 
When he says that he's the least of the apostles, uh, earlier when he said, last of all, he appeared to me, that was temporal. That was in terms of the chronology of our Lord's appearances. But when he says, I'm the least of all the apostles, he then, uh, he then accentuates that with, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Think of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8 where he says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's how Paul saw himself. He was the least of all the apostles. He was unworthy to be called an apostle. And in fact, he was the least of all of God's saints. He saw himself as the lowest of the low and one who was profound profoundly unworthy to even be called an apostle of Jesus Christ. One thing about Paul is that he was always profoundly aware of who and what he was. Even writing to his younger protege, Timothy, he could say in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is, a, it is a, a trustworthy statement deserving all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am protos. I am chief. I am the worst of all sinners. And notice it's interesting in 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul does not say, I used to be the worst of sinners, but I am the worst of all sinners. And then he explains why he sees himself as the least of all the apostles. He says, because I persecuted the church of God. Numerous times in the book of Acts, we read of Paul's persecution of the church. In Paul's own writings, he speaks freely and directly about his life as a persecutor of the church of God. And in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, just prior to the passage I just quoted for you, he identifies himself as a blasphemer, as a persecutor, and as a violent aggressor. For Paul, this was the reality of his past. And although Paul was absolutely certain that his sins were forgiven... His past was never far out of view. I think if the Apostle Paul would have, could have been here with us this morning, that he would have marveled at being able to sing that Christ is mine forevermore. He would have delighted in, in all of the declarations of the forgiveness of sins and, and, and the, the prayer of confession and the affirmation of forgiveness. And Paul would have had absolutely no question whatsoever that Jesus' blood had cleansed him from all of his sins, but as he looked at himself, what he understood at all times is that he was a sinner who had been forgiven. Matthew Henry says, when sinners are by divine grace turned into saints, he makes the remembrance of their former sins very serviceable to make them humble and diligent 
and faithful. And so here's the Apostle Paul. Stop and consider what his life was as a persecutor of the church. He had received letters from the Sanhedrin to be able to go to various cities and actually effect arrests and to uh, some of those arrests leading to the death of Christians and separating fathers from their families. And no doubt that emblazoned on Paul's memory were these, were these scenes that often would perhaps even haunt him of coming in and breaking up families all for the sake of persecuting this pseudo-Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And so here's Paul, one who understood he was the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, almost this grotesque thing, and yet that view of himself and his own sins did not cripple him. I think one of the mistakes that we make today is that we think that, that, that if we actually think too much about our sins or we think too much about our past, that it ends up just crippling us, it ends up hamstringing us, it ends up making us absolutely ineffective for the service of Christ. And I think for Paul, just the opposite was true. His past and his understanding of what he was actually was serviceable to him, and here's why it did not cripple him. Notice verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. The Apostle Paul could understood fully and completely that the grace of God had made him what he was. You understand that, that in God's providence, he's working out the contours of his grace in our lives even when we don't recognize it and don't see it. The grace of God shined all the greater in Paul's life because of the blackness of his own heart. The grace of God shined in Paul's life all the more brilliantly because of his past. And so Paul could say, I stand before you today as a Christian, but only by the grace of God. I stand before you today as an apostle, but only by the grace of God. Only grace can actually take a God-hating, Christ-hating, Christian-hating person and turn them into a servant of Christ and to a servant of His people. Boy, you want to talk about a miracle. By the way, it wasn't just that Paul went from being a persecutor of the church to a servant of the church. Paul went from being a persecutor of the church to a servant of the church with a special focus on the Gentiles. This was, a, this was a radical transformation, and it was a radical transformation because with Paul's Jewish heritage, he would have been brought up in an in a, in a, a atmosphere where he was taught a particular view of the nations or a particular view of Gentiles so that the Gentiles would have been the dogs. The Chagoyim were the dogs. The Gentiles were unclean. They were unfit. And there was this sense of, of a racial and religious superiority that Paul would have been just brought up with. And yet, 
What does God do to demonstrate His grace? He actually not only takes Paul and turns him from a Christ-hater to a Christ-lover, but He also takes Paul and turns him from an arrogant Jewish Pharisee to one who is actually laying down his life for the very people that he would have looked upon with contempt. How does that happen? Well, the answer is, is only by grace alone. And so the grace of God comes, and so here's Paul, and he could basically say that the grace of God has absolutely, thoroughly, completely made me what I am. The grace of God in eternity. The grace of God effected in time. The grace of God which is, which is now and forever my only hope. The grace of God which is only my salvation. The grace of God which is alone my sanctification. The grace of God which alone is my perseverance, the grace of God, which is my strength in the midst of weakness, the grace of God, which is sufficient for me at all times, it has made me what I am. What a powerful perspective for our own sense of of identity. There is, there is a sense in which what Paul says about himself is, is a paradigm or a model for all of us today who know the Lord Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, you are what you are. By the grace of God, you are no longer what you used to be. By the grace of God, it is secured that what God has destined you to be, you will be to the glory of Christ forever. And there is this wonderful sense that, that yes, I understand I have a past, and yes, I understand that I have sins, and yes, I can say with David, my sin is ever before me, but there's something else that is ever before me that is greater than all of my sin, and that is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry again, he says, We are nothing but what God makes us, nothing in religion but what grace His grace makes us. All that is good in us is a stream from this fountain of grace. And Paul was sensible of this and kept humble and thankful by this conviction, and so should we. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, you are what you are by the grace of God. Right away, when I hear that, I, I think to myself, but the grace of God has been so rich and abundant in my life, shouldn't I be farther along? Anybody ever feel like that? God has been so gracious to me. How in the world could I be so slow in this journey? And, and, and here's the wonderful thing. The grace of God actually echoes loud and clear that you are not what you used to be and, and, and you are not yet what you will be, but the grace of God is mightily at work and it is your identity. Notice what Paul says then. He says, and his grace did not become, his grace to me did not become vain. 
If you notice back at the beginning of chapter 15, verse 2, he says, talking about the gospel, he says, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, and then notice this, unless you believed in vain. Okay? He says something very similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1, where he says, we urge you, brethren, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, yesterday at the camp, we talked about the perseverance of the saints, and we talked about the way that, that you have promises of preservation, but you also have warnings and threats and even conditions. And so here's, here's something that's, that's really important. Paul says, the grace of God has made me what I am, and God's grace to me did not prove to be in vain. And, and again, there's a perspective here that is incredibly powerful, because on the one hand, you see the sovereignty of God's grace, and you see the efficacy of God's grace, but you also then see equally the importance of human response and human responsibility. And this, is, this actually should really shape our theology. You know, sometimes we're a little timid to talk even like the Bible talks, Right? You should be able to say to yourself, I have not, God's grace has not been in vain to me. Okay? Which seems to imply at least that if you're urged not to receive the grace of God in vain, that we ought to be conscientious that the grace that God has shown to us repeatedly each and every day, that we not squander that grace. Yes, on the one hand, that grace is sovereign and it's free and it's invincible and it triumphs. But on the other hand, there is also a sense where I have to receive it and I have to actually embrace it in a way that it doesn't prove vain in my life. In other words, everybody who squanders the grace of God, actually that falls not on God but on us. And so Paul says, his grace didn't prove vain in me. I've not stopped running the race. I've employed the gifts and the graces that God has given me. And with a sense of humility, I have fallen on my face. I've recognized his grace in my life. And that grace has not proved vain. Then Paul says something that seems a little strange to us in the middle of verse 10. He says, but I labored even more than all of them. How many of you like hanging around somebody that brags? How many of you actually avoid somebody that's always talking? Uh, you remember, um, what was that, uh, Napoleon Dynamite? Um, Uncle Rico, right? Yeah, you, you just the Uncle Rico guy. You just don't want to be around him because everything goes back to his senior year in high school when he was the quarterback and won the state championship, and everything is about how great I am. And 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 here's here's something that if you don't understand what Paul's saying, all of a sudden all of this humility just seems to evaporate quickly when Paul turns around and he says, and I labored more than all of them. 
It's an amazing statement because the word for labor, kapiao, is the idea of toiling to the point of exhaustion, and who's more than all of them? That is the other apostles. It almost sounds like for a second that Paul's saying, yeah, you know Peter and all those guys, they're hard workers, but they really don't know what hard work really is. If you want to see a hard-working apostle, look at me, right? I worked more than all of them. And so here's, here's just sort of a peculiar thing in this text. On the one hand, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. On the other hand, I am the least of all the apostles. And then yet on the other hand, I've worked harder than all the rest of the apostles. Paul could actually look at his life and look at a life of labor and toil and exertion for the sake of Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul had um, sent down to Ephesus. He was in Miletus. He sends down to Ephesus and has the, the elders of the Ephesian church meet him there. And in, in Acts chapter 20, you have what really is this uh, magnificent pastoral theology kind of compressed into this, into this chapter. And Paul actually looks at those Ephesian elders and he says this, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Paul basically viewed his life as, as, as one that was to, to be spent for the sake of Christ. The apostle looked at his life as one who, who actually just laid everything down for Christ. He was not going to leave anything on the table. He was not going to leave anything on the field. He was going to give it his all each and every day. And Paul could actually say, I actually am a hard worker for the Lord Jesus. In fact, those other apostles, as hard as they work, I work harder. And then he turns around and says something that in a sense rescues him from being the braggart. And he says, but not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul is quick to note that, that all of this hard work, uh, a willingness to spend and to be spent. I mean, th just think about the Apostle Paul's ministry for a minute. One of the things that has always amazed me is that is the, the variety of churches that Paul planted and served and loved, and they were not all like the church at Philippi. It was probably pretty easy for Paul to, to expend his energies on behalf of the saints at Philippi because they were really, it was a wonderful church. Or even the Thessalonians, and even though they were young, they, they had received the word with eagerness. But stop and think, would you actually lay down your life for the Corinthians? I spent a little time at a Southern Baptist seminary in New Orleans, and the Greek teacher said that... Um, 
You know where Paul says so many times, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, comma. You know that phrase? I would not have you ignorant, brethren. If Paul would have been a Southern Baptist pastor, he would have said, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. There's a sense where you look at these people and they're just, they're, they're, they're filled with sin and everything else. A very unlovely congregation. And yet Paul could say, I spend and am spent gladly for your sake. This is the way that Paul lived his life. But then he says, basically, all of the toil, all of the expense, all of the, all of the uh, 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 energy that I pour out on your behalf, it's really not me. It's the grace of God in me. And God's grace actually doesn't just say, respond, respond, but it enkindles, it inflames the response. And the apostle knew that the labor that he was expending on behalf of the church at large and for the sake of the mission was being enkindled and inflamed and impassioned by the very grace of God. For Paul, the final word in his life is not work. For Paul, the final word in his life is grace. Who I am, what I do, is all of grace. The same grace that saved me is the same grace that sanctifies me. It's the same grace that shapes me. It's the same grace that empowers me. It's the same grace that motivates me. It's the same grace that energizes me. It is the same grace that strengthens me to do all that God calls me to do. One pastor puts it like this, Paul wants to exalt the moment-by-moment grace of God in such a way that it is clear that he himself is not the decisive doer of this work. I often think about what the end of my life will be like, and of course nobody knows. But I think about growing old. I think about a life of service to Christ. I think about a um, a pathetically shy 13, 14-year-old boy who was compelled by Christ to pursue ministry. I think about all of the time that I've wasted, I think of all of the opportunities that I have missed. I think of all the times where I have failed God's people. The list is considerable. It really is. And I think of one of the great preachers of the American colonies, Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies died at a relatively young age. Shortly before he died, he wrote a letter to a friend. Understand that Samuel Davies was a tireless worker for the kingdom of God and did much for, um, 
for the church of God in, in the colonies, especially Virginia. And Samuel Davies writes at the end of a life which he never married, he stayed focused on his calling and from all appearances never deviated, but he says these words, I feel so sad that I have made so little progress in the knowledge of my King, the Lord Jesus, and have made so little progress in His grace which He's poured out upon me. I have absolutely no doubt that as that final day appears, there will be much to look back on and to think, I could have done more. I could have done better. But there will also be firmly under my feet the confidence that I am who I am by the grace of God. And although I could have made better use of the grace given to me, His grace did not prove vain. And whatever was accomplished for the sake of Christ and His kingdom, the decisive factor in all of it was not me, but the grace of God in me. And brothers and sisters, that should be true for all of us. All of us. The apostle wraps this up before he gets into the argument of the resurrection of believers in verse 11 saying, we, that is we apostles, we apostles who have seen the resurrected Jesus, we preach. That's what we do. We do it by the grace of God. We preach the gospel of the risen Christ. We preach matters of first importance, and thus you believed. You believed what we preach by the grace of God. As I think about this text, especially verses 9 and 10, it is really, it's a powerful declaration of the truth of the gospel, is it not? Th th think about this. If you're struggling with, with the validity, the veracity of the Christian faith, understand that the, that the very conversion of the Apostle Paul is profound and powerful evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To take Paul and to take him for what he was, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, one who was filled with hate. Don't have a view of Paul, by the way, that, that after he went and did something terrible, he hops on his horse and he's riding along and he's thinking, am I doing the right thing? My conscience is really troubling me. That was not Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus would finish his, his, his dirty deeds and then go on to the next thinking that he was serving God. And so when Jesus Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus, what ends up happening is that Jesus Christ appears to the first century Osama bin Laden and transforms his life 
and transforms his life in such a way that he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And so a powerful passage that declares to us the truthfulness of the gospel, but this passage also provides for us a framework for our identity in Jesus Christ and our kingdom work ethic. On the one hand, I am what I am by the grace of God. Do you know what that means? That means that the rest of this day, tomorrow morning, all throughout tomorrow and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday until you meet again next Lord's Day you are going to need the grace of God at every moment. Jerry Bridges who also is in heaven now wrote and I love this quote our worst days are never so bad that you are your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. That's us every day. Every day. And so on the one hand, grace is what shapes me. Grace is what gives me an identity. What I am, I am by the grace of God. And then on the other hand, I want to work as hard as possible, recognizing that it is not me, but it is the grace of God within me. And so I exhort you this morning for the sake of Christ, let's be great doers and let's be great workers and let us, as we do and And as we work, minute by minute, trust in the grace of God that empowers us. Spouses, husbands, wives, do you ever struggle with being the husband or the wife that God has called you to be? Do you ever struggle with being the mom or the dad that God calls you to be? Do you ever struggle with being the witness that Jesus calls you to be? Do you ever struggle with being the church member that you know that you should be? The, the answer is not with self-determination, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps, the the answer is to trust in the all-sufficient grace of God and get going. And when you lack motivation, ask God for more grace. And when you feel weak, ask God for more grace. And when you feel distracted, ask God for more grace. And here's the most wonderful thing of all. God's never going to say, didn't I give you some yesterday? I thought, I thought I gave you enough last Friday to last a little longer than this. His grace is an inexhaustible fountain for us. And you can ask as often as you want, and He will give you fresh supplies minute by minute for His glory and for your good.